I don't have a title for the talk tonight, but maybe something will emerge through the talk, and then I'll put it on the tape. (laughs) I want to start off with a poem, um, rather obscure. It was written by a woman named Opal Whiteley when she was a child. Today, near even time, I did lead the girl who has no seeing a little way into the forest where it was darkness and shadows were. I led her toward a shadow that was coming our way. It did touch her cheeks with its velvety fingers, and now she too does have likings for shadows, and her fear that was is gone. I want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the misconceptions we have about meditation, but maybe not so directly, maybe a little bit indirectly, but it has something to do with shadows and going to places where it's not so easy. I know when I first started the spiritual journey or what I call my meditation practice, I had lots of ideas, lots of ideas about what was going to happen to me when I got really good at meditating. (laughs) And I really did think that the meditation practice promised that I would become this very pure and loving, generous, uh, (laughs) saint-like person, and that if I just really worked hard and put a lot of effort into it, that this was the guarantee. And it's very interesting to be many years down the line and have a chance to look at what's happened, (laughs) at least where, where I am at the moment, because it's quite a different picture. The promise, at least the way I heard it, isn't quite the way I thought it was. I think what happens is that maybe in the beginning, for some of us who do hold some ideals about what's possible for us, these ideals that come through the culture and they make promises of being able to have everything, be everything who you possibly can be, be successful, have lots of things. There's a kind of aspiration or a hope that we have that we really can make the best of things in a very successful way. It's certainly ingrained in the American culture, maybe even more so. Be all you can be, you know, and what that means is to have lots of successes, money and accumulations and houses and cars and all those things. And I think for me, having had that message, there was a transference of that kind of aspiration from cultural successes to spiritual successes, 
just a, a substitution from one set of ideals to another set of ideals so that I thought meditation would give me a whole new set of ideals. But in fact, the picture sitting here where I am today seems that it's very, very different. The teachings are about non-attachment. This is the core of the teaching. It's about letting go and non-attachment. And it seems that, as I sit here, that in some ways the basic neurosis hasn't actually changed that much. The basic sense of my personality and how I am in the world doesn't seem to have changed that much. But what has radically changed is my relationship to that, my attachment to that, my attachment to needing that neurosis (laughs) to be different. And certainly through this letting go of the need for those personality habits that aren't so lovely, certainly that itself brings a great deal of rest and ease in oneself. But it's different. It's different than what I expected. And I put this out to you because I think it's a message that isn't heard very much. That in some ways what we think is going to change maybe isn't the thing that changes. Because I think what happens is people might be looking in the wrong place to evaluate how their meditation is going, how their evolution is going. That there is a more, there's a letting go, for me there's been a letting go of how I appear to myself and to others in the world. So there's more possibility for who I really am to show itself, to express itself. But in that, it means that even the things that I haven't liked about myself very well also show up also starts surfacing and coming forward. And in psychotherapy, there's a word for this. This is called the shadow. The shadow. That aspect of ourselves, when as we're growing up, gets suppressed and goes underground, and we try to pretend that it's not there, and then we boost up this self-image, the the identity of who we want to present ourselves as, that gets projected out. So the self-image gets boosted up, the shadow gets pushed down. (laughs) And in a way, this is a split. We split off from ourselves. But through the changing this relationship to what we see in ourselves, starting to open and allowing, looking directly at the truth of things, it kind of takes the lid off of that whole bit that gets suppressed, starts to show up, and then some things start to arise that may not be so easy to deal with. And we think, immediately we may think, I'm not meditating right. (laughs) 
I'm doing something wrong. Because the ideals of what we think the meditation is going to be about doesn't match what's actually happening. All this stuff starts getting stirred up. And sometimes meditation is called unleashing the demons. Going down into the snake pits. (laughs) The snake pits of the soul. And then these snakes start coming up and rearing their ugly heads. And it depends how much willingness or perseverance we have, how much strength we feel in order to face these demons. Before, for me, there was the need to hide and protect and censor this part of myself that I didn't want anybody to see. I had a sense of it, that it was there, but I was even trying to hide it from myself. And then through the meditation of this looking and being honest and being truthful, letting go of my own idea of how I needed to be with myself or others, slowly just surfacing. So, in a way, meditation isn't what we think it is. This is actually, I like that one. Meditation isn't what we think. You might want to reflect on what your own ideas about meditation are. Ways that you may be setting up potential conflict for yourself if you have a set of ideals and then you come in here and things aren't happening quite the way you expected. It may be interesting to see how you're relating to that. Is there doubt arising or questioning condemning, judging, thinking you're doing it wrong? Or is it more that you're just in conflict with your ideas about things, your ideas about what's supposed to be happening? I think for many people come with the idea that meditation is going to be peaceful and restful, very tranquil, and empty mind, no thought. (laughs) It happens so often and then when it doesn't show up that way, people start asking questions. What's going on? In a way, people don't know what they're getting themselves into. Ram Dass, um, teacher in America, said that we should put a warning label on the retreat schedule. like they do on packages of cigarettes. (laughs) Meditation may be dangerous to your mental health. (laughs) When I was at IMS last month, the center in Boston, Massachusetts, they had a sign on the the wall before I went into the meditation hall that that said, Meditation hall ahead, proceed with caution. (laughs) But the funny thing is that about five or six days into the retreat, I looked up at the sign and it actually didn't say that at all. It said... (laughs) 
the meditation hall ahead proceed with cushion. (laughs) 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 So you can tell where my mind was at. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe meditation isn't what we think it is. We may think that over a period of time there'll be less fear, less anxiety, less anger, but maybe not. (coughs) Maybe it won't be that way. Maybe it will be in time. Maybe there is the hope, certainly the teachings put out the hope, that these things can come to an end. But who knows what the timeline is for that? (laughs) Whose agenda we're following? There may be a period of time where the fear actually increases. The anger actually increases. The rage. When we start getting in touch with some of these aspects of ourselves that have been suppressed for so long, that have been ignored for so long, So I think we have to be very careful not to evaluate where we are, how we're doing. It's a very difficult thing. When I was doing the last three-month course, I was going into interviews with Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, and I kept wanting to know how I was doing. How how am I doing? four weeks and six weeks and eight weeks, you know, a lot of reference points start to fall away. And I really didn't have a sense of how I was doing. And, and so there was certainly the temptation to evaluate. And Sharon would just keep, just keep reminding me, you can't evaluate. Don't try to evaluate. It's a lost cause. And I had to keep letting go of any criteria that I had that I wanted to form to get some sense of that and just keep letting go back into the void back into the unknown trusting, trusting that things were proceeding the way they needed to proceed that not knowing so maybe there isn't a radical change on the personality level but what does seem to happen is a, is a sense of authenticity. There's more of a way of being that is genuine, that is authentic, that is real. And it may not be so pleasant <laughs> a lot of the time, it may not be very nice, but it's real. It's a true expression of who I am, of who you are. And how could that not be precious in any way when somebody offers us that gift? That gift of the truth of themselves, the truth of who they are. Even if it doesn't look so nice sometimes. So, when when we're meditating, we look at this the shadow side of ourselves, but we also have to look at the self-image 
the way that we project ourselves. This identity that we want to carry and say, this is me, this is who I am. This self-image which comes about through messages that we get from our upbringing, through our mothers, our fathers, cultural impressions, the media, lots from the media. You know, this is who you are, this is how you should be, this is how you'll be happy in the world, and taking all these impressions on as a, a, a vulnerable, growing person. Messages from religious organizations, depending on one's uh, exposure to a religion, lots of language of perfection and ideals, idealism, and how this impresses on us and builds a sense of who we think we are. And this becomes our conditioning, our makeup, in a way, of our personality, of how we express ourselves. And these form habits. We form habits from these kinds of impressions that then get projected and be acted out. Everyone has this conditioning. Everybody is conditioned, is a conditioned being in this way. The problem is not in this package of conditioning. The problem isn't in this collection of impressions and habits. The problem arises when we think this is who we are. When we really believe that this is who we are, this collection of conditionings. And when we feel limited, we have a limited view that this is all of who we are. And then we can't see the more expansive reality beyond that identity, beyond that self-image. Because thinking that I am this package, of course, is limited. It means I am this, but I'm not that. It's always creating a, a circle or a boundary around, this is who I am. I'm this, but I'm not that. But this is really our problem. This limited way of viewing ourselves. I'd like to read the story that expresses this idea. This is one of my favorite stories. This is from Ram Dass's book on How Can I Help. It's about a doctor in a, in a hospital. As an intern, part of my work was to travel around in teams examining patients. I would notice their look as we entered, intimidated, apprehensive, feeling like case studies of various illnesses. I hated that, but I was an intern. I remember one guy distinctly, however, who was altogether different. I think this guy changed my life. He was a black man in his 60s, very cute, very mischievous, and very sick. What brought us repeatedly to him was the utter complexity of his illness, condition on top of condition, and the mystery of why he was still alive. It was so strange. We were visiting not to find out what was wrong with him, but why he was still here at all. I had the feeling he could see right through us. He'd say, hey boys, when we'd come in. 
the way you might when a gang of ten-year-olds come barging into a house for a snack in the middle of an intense game outside. He was so pleased and so amused, it made people nervous. (laughs) I was intrigued, but for some weeks I never had a chance to be alone with him. Now and then he'd get into very serious trouble, and he'd be moved into intensive care. Then he'd rally, he'd get better, to everyone's amazement, and we'd move him back. And we'd visit him again, and he'd say, You boys here again? (laughs) Pretending to be surprised that we were still around. (laughs) One night there was an emergency, and I took the initiative and went to see him alone. He looked pretty bad. But he came alert a few seconds after I entered. He gave me a big grin and said, Well, sort of like he'd expected me. Like he'd known how much I'd come to love him. That happens in hospitals. I imagine I looked a little surprised at the, Well, but we just laughed a minute and I stood there just so taken by who he was. And then he hit me with a single remark half a question, half a something else. Who you, he said, sort of smiling. Just like that, who you? I started to say, well, I'm doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And then I just stopped cold. It's hard to describe. I just sort of went out. What happened was that all kinds of answers to his questions started to go through my head. They all seemed true, but they all seemed less than true. Yeah, I'm this, and I'm that, and also, but not just, and that's not the whole picture. The whole picture is the thought process went something like that. Nothing remotely like that had ever happened to me before, but I remember feeling very elated. It must have shown because he gave me this big grin and said, Nice to meet you. (laughs) His timing killed me. We talked for five minutes about this and that, nothing in particular, children, I think. At the end, I ventured to say, Is there anything I can do for you? He said, No, I'm just fine. Thanks very much, doctor. Doctor. And he paused for the name, and I gave it to him this time. And he grinned at me again, really he did, and that was it. He died a few days later, and I carry him around today. I think of him now and again in the midst of my rounds. A particular moment or a particular patient brings him back. Who are you? For years I trained to be a physician, and I almost got lost in it. This man took away my degree and then gave it back to me with a and also, and also, and also, scribbled across it. I'll never forget that. So sometimes who we think we are, (laughs) we get quite identified with, is that really all? Do we have to live from this limited idea 
this limited perspective of ourselves. Maybe we're more than who we think we are. And also, and also, and also. Does it end? Is there any limit to that expression? For me, I think I finally get that meditation is not going to make me a better person. It's not going to really make me very different than who I am. I don't have to become anything other than what's here right now. I can still have vision and direction for myself. I can still have hopes for myself. But they're not imposed on how I should be right now. And from that perspective, I really know that this is okay. Right now, this is okay. And then I can be this, and I can be that, I can be this, and I can be that. And I don't have to be something in particular. I don't have to hold on to any particular image or role or idea. Just allowing that expression of who I am in that moment to reveal itself. It's not a matter of getting better or not being better. The whole duality of better and worse, going somewhere, becoming something, all these kinds of concepts lose their meaning. And in a way, we're left right here with this with who we are right here, right now. And can this be enough? And that includes some moments of being identified with roles and ideas and identities, and then that falls away. And then what may emerge is some unpleasant aspects, some negativity, some difficulties, and that comes, and that's who I am, and there's an expression of that, and then that falls away. And then there may be something new that arises, something fresh, a new expression that I haven't experienced before. Looking at a flower, smelling something that I haven't smelled before, a wonderful feeling coming over me. That's who I am. I'm a happy person. I'm a person in touch with life. And then that falls away. So there isn't any need to identify with any particular aspect, but more just allowing that expression of that moment to come, show itself, reveal itself, and then pass away. Something new comes. So this sense of I sense of who I am doesn't become so fixed, so solid, so identified with, which then can start causing a lot of struggle and conflict inside and outside. So it's really about making friends 
making friends with what we see in ourselves, making friends with all the different aspects, the positive, the negative, and getting strong in that friendship. Because it's in that fresh friendship itself that wants to be all it can be. It doesn't mean that we're just going to be left. <laughs> it means because we feel so good about ourselves, we like ourselves so well, we want to be the full expression of who we can be. And that itself takes us to these higher places, to experiencing our fuller, fullest potential in our lives. It comes from the friendship. It comes from the love. It doesn't come from the pounding and the, the efforting and the condemning and why aren't you doing it better and what's wrong with you and the anger, the condemning, the resentment, the negativity. It comes from love. It comes from friendship. This radical acceptance, I call this a radical acceptance of ourselves, in that there is such a relaxation. The breath is such an expression of that relaxation. There's such a relaxation. We just relax and relax and relax until that essential truth of who we are is touched. We relax right into it. And then that truth is revealed. There's nothing obscuring that truth. That truth which is not dependent on any particular conditions manifesting. It's always there. I like to end by reading um, the story that I read. I'm sure those of you who have been around here heard this before it's from a children's book um, about frog and toad and this is the garden frog was in his garden toad came walking by what a fine garden you have frog he said yes said frog it is very nice but it was hard work I wish I had a garden said toad Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon? asked Toad. Quite soon, said Frog. (laughs) Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds didn't start to grow. (laughs) Toad put his head close to the ground and said, said loudly, Now seeds, start growing! (laughs) Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds, start growing! Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise? he asked. (laughs) My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You're shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. (laughs) My seeds are afraid to grow, said Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. 
Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out of his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they won't be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. <laughs> and all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music for his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. <laughs> the seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. <laughs> then Toad felt very tired and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe there isn't a lot that needs to be said after that, you know? I mean, it really does speak to all of us. It speaks to me. I know it speaks to you. It's just not happening fast enough. (laughs) There's so much I want to do, and I can't do it because I have all these obstacles. (laughs) So what are we left with? Keep fighting and trying and efforting and changing it and wanting it to be different. But sometimes maybe we just have to keep doing that until we get really tired and we just fall asleep like Toad did. We get so exhausted from all the energy we put out. When I wonder if things aren't happening all by themselves, things are happening very nicely maybe not according to our plan my plan (laughs) but maybe there's some other law something else maybe some higher wisdom some higher intelligence than this little brain (laughs) that knows what's going on and maybe not even higher like higher than this body maybe just higher than this brain (laughs) maybe that's what this is all about is just getting a glimpse, just a taste of something that's not what I think I am. 
not all wrapped up in the eye. It's all we need is a glimpse. It's here right now. Let's sit for a few minutes together. (laughs) 